0: chalupa for you chalupa for me everybody loves chalupas that's why you come to see me no me and me is not a rhyme you're better than that everybody loves chalupas in this christmas time. time everybody wants a chalupa that's what see time again Everybody wants chalupas in this holiday time. time. So I've got some delicious chalupas. That's my, uh, your wish and and mine. All right, I tried, folks. I'm sorry. This is Rish Outfield, and you are listening to the Rish Outcast. This would be the holiday episode 2021. (laughs) I'm driving home from set. I worked on a television show this whole week, uh, which is a nice paycheck, but it was long every single day, insanely long. They milked us for exactly as much time as they could without paying us overtime. And the second we had been there for, you know, 11 hours and 59 minutes, they said, okay, well, we'll send you home. Except for today, we got. A sliver of overtime I don't know that it counts. Damn. I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, I've got to drive home and I thought I would do my Christmas episode. Right? Wouldn't you? I don't know. I hadn't a clue what to do this year. I have a couple of stories that I thought I could run. I remembered two years ago or maybe last year Looking at Charles Dickens' stories that he wrote, he he did several holiday stories after A Christmas Carol was super popular. And I thought, oh, well, I could dig up one of those. That would be really cool. Unfortunately, all of them are long, and I would have had to have planned and recorded it back in, like, October or something. It's fun. I've got this drop. I, I want an excuse to use it in every episode. As you know, Bob... As you know, Bob... I went to Europe at the very end of October and beginning of November, and when I came back, there was three or four feet of snow at the cabin, so I couldn't go back to the cabin get my stuff. My clothes are there. The exercise bike I bought is there. My food is all still there. Usually, we can access the cabin until about Thanksgiving or so, but there was no getting there this time, and so... I missed out on a couple of recording opportunities. Uh, I tend to do a lot of editing while I'm there, too. But that's all gone until next end of spring, early summer. And, you know, that's fine. It was a fair trade. There's not been a day that I haven't thought about Europe and how interesting it was. And I uh, talked to somebody the other day that's been doing Duolingo And it just bothers me that I I didn't know what that was until it was too late. That was a roundabout way of saying I I, I wasn't sure what to run for Christmas. But I looked at the things that I had recorded because I had been planning on doing a Christmas collection for years now. And it has to have a couple of stories in it that I haven't run on the show. But in looking at Christmas stories, I stumbled upon a story that I wrote in 2021. It was just a year ago. Say what? what? Called Made Just For You. It is a Laura and the Witch short story. In 2021, I believe I wrote three Lara and the Witch short stories and a novel. And the only thing that I put out was the short story. But it's Christmas time and I'm going to run it. And if you don't like that, if you don't like that, well, I I get it. I initially wrote a story called Like a Good Neighbor. A decade ago, probably, that introduced Lara Deming and her neighbor, Old Widow Holcomb. And then in the years since then, I have played with continuing that story until eventually I wrote a sequel
1: that was longer and bigger called You're in Good Hands. I have not run You're in Good Hands on the show. So so this was the first story that I wrote after the second book. And I had a conversation with somebody about the continuity of the stories that that they jump all over in time, like the Conan the Barbarian stories. And while that is true, I don't believe that you need to... You need to have read the first two that I've mentioned, because they set up the situation. This one takes place, I believe, when Lara is 13 the first Christmas since you're in good hands. And uh, I think that's all you need to know. I'll talk a little bit more after the story about the fun and the challenge of this series. Uh, but I hope that you enjoy this, and I really need to publish more of these stories since they're written, and uh, maybe make a collection of three or four of the stories Uh, As far as I know, the collection that exists now is just the first two novellas. But it's the holidays, and I did want to have a holiday story out this year. And so this is it. I'll see you on the other side.
0: Made just for you. Alara and the Witch Story. Written and narrated by Rishoutfield. Laura Deming had been settled down in her new life for almost a year now. But this was her first Christmas in their new home, in their new town, in their new state. This was also her new family, just her and Victoria Holcomb, now going by Miram Mirabilis, previously known as Old Widow Holcomb. Snow was starting to fall, and Lara was watching it through the window. For a moment, the old woman watched the girl watching, and felt that familiar affection mixed with regret over the losses in her life. Literally everyone she had grown up with, so many years ago, was dead. Even if they had had access to witchcraft to prolong their lives, her three husbands were all dead, too, two of them by her own hand, though the first one had not been intentional. She had to face it. Laura Deming was her family now. Just as all Laura had any more was Holcomb herself. The witch had placed a spell on the girl, right before they had moved here, that in the unlikely event that Laura encountered anyone from her old life, a cousin, an aunt, a classmate. They would think she was a stranger. It was a spell she had designed to make the girl safer, but it had only served to make her feel more alone in the world. Laura would get over it. She was smart, talented, and might one day be quite pretty, depending on her skin and diet and genetics. And with a wise guardian to guide her, she could accomplish much maybe even greatness. But she was quite young, was at an emotional age, and had been through the loss of her family, which many girls would not be able to overcome. Deep thinking, Lara, or just wool-gathering? Holcomb asked. Lara flinched, unaware the witch had been there, though she should have been used to it by now. She wiped at her eyes and pretended she had not been crying. What does wool gathering mean? Just something people used to say, probably from plantation days, but it means being indolent. What does indo lazy, carefree, shiftless, not amounting to much? Yep, that's me, Laura said. And by the set of her shoulders, she was about to go to her room and lock the door and listen to mediocre and cliched music designed to help her revel in her melancholia. You did your homework, didn't you, girl? Holcomb prompted. Yes, the girl said all too quickly. Yes, Holcomb repeated. Yes, what? I I did most of it in class. There were, like, eight questions left, and now those are finished. Then you're not indolent at all, are you? It was the closest she could come to a tender compliment. Holcomb's upbringing had not included gentleness or indulgence. But she was well aware that this generation had ludicrously heightened personal sensitivity, and required a bit more measured touch. Lara didn't respond. She just turned her full attention back on the falling snow outside. Well, at least it wasn't on her phone. Holcomb felt like she had to say something more. She asked, What are you thinking about? And surprised herself by actually caring what the answer would be. Just Christmas. And home, Lara said, not turning her way. There was nothing the old woman could say about that. She'd been on her own for decades now, not needing a family other than herself and the occasional friend she made or lover she took along the way. Still, she said, Ah, I understand. She wanted to comfort the girl, who had watched her family die in an auto accident while she emerged unscathed. But warmth just wasn't in Holcomb's wheelhouse. The old woman had work to do, so she turned to go. Before she took a step, she heard the girl shift her position and ask, Do you celebrate Christmas? Me? Of course. Laura looked at her askance. But you're a witch. It was originally a pagan holiday, child. What does that mean? Holcomb sat down in her easy chair. She had originally called it her comfy chair until Lara showed her a clip of YouTube, where a group of men repeated, Not the comfy chair! as though it meant something. Just in case this was to be a lengthy discussion. She didn't look more than fifty or sixty at present, but she occasionally felt more like a hundred or her actual age, one hundred and three. It means, Lara, that many of the traditions you Christians so vigorously cling to were actually stolen from other, older observances. The tree, hanging the mistletoe, the gift exchange, stockings, sitting on the lap of a bearded stranger wearing nothing but a red hat, all of those were part of celebrating the solstice. Laura processed this, gauging the truth of what she was being told. Normally it would upset her to hear this sort of revelation. But some of that she had already heard on the Internet, so she decided not to let it bother her. So it's like how English came from German and Latin and whatever they spoke in England, but it came here and got perfect in America? I guess I can live with that. You're a credit to your race, Lara, the witch said, which could have been a compliment, or it could have been an insult, but Lara took it as the former. Well, I I just wondered about you and and Christmas, Lara said. I've always loved Christmas. I suppose all children do. Lara wanted to tell her she was not a child, but everybody was a child compared to old widow Holcomb. Even Betty White and Meryl Streep and Angelina Jolie. "'Well, I just wondered if you'd celebrate it. If we'd have presents and stuff.' The witch had not considered it. Any more than she'd bake a turkey for Thanksgiving, or give natives smallpox for Columbus Day. But it was obviously important to the girl. So Holcomb didn't mince words. "'Certainly we will, Lara.' We can even harvest a tree and decorate it, if you like. This pleased the girl, but she played it down as much as she could. Yeah, sure. Then she took a sharp, excited breath. Holcomb flinched just a little, like Laura had done when she realized she'd been observed. Oh, I got an idea, Laura exclaimed, and ran over to Holcomb's side. She put her little hands on her arm, in such an affectionate way, that the old woman stared down at them for a moment, unsure of what to do. Lara didn't notice the witch's reaction, and went on with her idea. You and me should exchange magic Christmas gifts. You and I, Lara, Holcomb corrected. Who else? We could each cast a spell for each other, something the other one would like, she said proudly. A spell, Holcomb repeated the girl was smiling, and for a moment there she looked as pretty as her beautiful sister had, right, like for example, let's say you saw I was failing math, and so you cast are you failing math, child Holcomb interrupted, no, I have at least a C that's hardly good enough. Holcomb commented. The girl didn't want to get distracted. Well, it's just an example. So don't really do this, but let's say I was failing, so you cast a spell so I suddenly understand math perfectly. Wouldn't that be neat? Very neat, child, Holcomb deadpanned. Of course, you could just open a book once in a while. That's a type of magic, I hear. Lara ignored her. And let's say that you had a cold or something, so I cast a spell to make your cold go away. And then you cure the cold by stopping my heart, Holcomb predicted. No, no, it would be something I study and get right, and do it for you for Christmas, and you do one for me. She said it through a toothy grin that would probably necessitate braces to correct in the years to come. Or magic, Holcomb thought to herself. That could be done. In the same manner as fixing bones so they healed straight, or charming limps so they faded away. So healing my sickness, provided you could manage it, would be your gift to me? Yeah, sure. I mean, you could get me something else. Like that sweater I liked, or a trip to the ice cream shop, or something. In December, child? Holcomb asked, dubious. Sure. Ice cream still tastes good when it's cold outside. Or you could cast a spell so the ice cream is hot, but it doesn't melt. Holcomb squinted at her. I'm afraid that's beyond even my abilities, child. Well, then you've got to be more creative. Isn't that a fun idea? She was so pleased with this notion of hers that it really was quite adorable, and Holcomb's left hand, of its own accord, reached over and clasped Lara's two smaller hands in a gentle touch. Lara looked down at the witch's hand, and her smile changed. She was still smiling, but now it was more affectionate than delighted. And I'll get you a card or a snow globe or something, too, if you don't trust me to cast a good spell. I don't, in fact. So find me a snow globe with goblins or... Black cats, or a woman sodomizing a village elder in it instead. Yeah, right, Laura said, and laughed. She actually laughed at something Holcomb had said. A pre-Christmas miracle. The witch took a moment to appreciate what had passed between them, and then decided to ruin it. Ignoring an ugly truth didn't make it any less ugly, her mother had said her mother being such a great beauty that she had been known to woo men of her village right before they reached their wedding beds, just for the challenge of it. Of course, this sounds like the recipe for something going terribly wrong, which I have to sort out at the last minute. Not this time, Laura promised. And then even she seemed to realize that her statement was ludicrously naive. Well... We can get the reset button set up anyway, just in case. Holcomb didn't really get the reference, but she understood the sentiment. I think I can whip something up. Though if I were the least bit clever, I'd have a spell ready every time you try to cast a spell. Laura stuck her tongue out at her, then broke away and grabbed up her backpack from where she'd set it on the table. Well, I'm going to do my homework now she said. Is that a euphemism? Holcomb asked, her lip curling. You really are too young for that sort of thing. My history homework, Laura clarified, sounding exasperated. You said you'd finished your homework, Holcomb said, aware this was sounding suspiciously parental. That was math. This is for U.S. history. Holcomb smirked. "'Let me save you the suspense. "'It was the white man's fault.' "'Yeah?' "'The girl had heard this kind of nonsense before. "'According to the old woman's politics, "'even Laura was lumped in with the white man.' "'The Louisiana Purchase? "'That was the white man's fault?' "'The witch hadn't intended the statement "'to be anything other than a sardonic generalization,' But if the shoe fit... Why, yes, actually. Exactly that. Oh, okay. I'll just put that in my report. See what kind of grade I get. Then the girl smiled again. So, do we have a deal? I met your history teacher. He will not appreciate your attempt at... No, not that. Laura interrupted. For Christmas. You and me exchange spells instead of presents. "'Yes, indeed. But try not to bite off more than you can chew.' "'I won't,' promised the girl. But she hadn't even considered the statement. "'This new development might turn out to be more trouble than it was worth.' There weren't a lot of assignments given out in Lara's middle school during the last week before Christmas, so the girl had plenty of time to figure out what to cast and how to cast it. Holcomb, despite not bringing any books with her from her old home to her new one, had a library of obviously old, and undoubtedly rare, spell books to check through. It was in one of these, a thick-paged tome called Glamours and Perceptions, that Lara found what she was looking for. The book was heavily annotated in grey ink, and had been signed, To Victoria, In Hell I'll Wait, Mordecai, on the second page. Not exactly a romantic gesture, at least not the kind BTS or Blackpink sang about. She came into Holcomb's study, where the woman was sitting by the fireplace, eating... Yuck, raw broccoli. Can I get some ingredients? she asked, not needing to specify that she was after magical ones. That depends on their rarity. Enlighten me. Happy to help, Lara flipped on the light switch. Holcomb scowled. What are you after, child? I need two feathers, one from a living bird and one from a bird that died. But not, not at your own hand, Holcomb finished, just as Lara said. Not by my own hand. What exactly are you casting, Lara? asked the witch. I can't tell you, the girl said, and grinned knowingly. Once again, the old woman noticed her teeth, and how the canines were starting to overlap the middle ones. That was just going to get worse as Lara reached her teens. You'd best tell me, if you want my help in obtaining ingredients for your— It's for your present, Lara admitted. Come on. The witch nodded. It was impressive that the child was still focused on this, when there were so many distractions in the modern age. I must warn you that, regardless of how noble your efforts are— I won't be drinking any potions you mix for me. Lara thought this over. Fine, but I'm not drinking any of yours either. You wouldn't have to drink for mine to be effective, boasted the woman, and I could just compel you to drink if I had to. It was the wrong thing to say. Fear played at the girl's eyes, and Holcomb regretted the boast. Never mind that. As long as you're careful and follow the spellbook to the letter, it should be relatively safe. As soon as the words were out of her mouth, though, Holcomb thought she had overcompensated. You could never say the right thing when emotions were involved. Often it was better to say nothing at all. While Lara's big challenge was to cast a spell that didn't have unforeseen or disastrous consequences, Victoria Holcomb's challenge was coming up with an appropriate spell in the first place. She was accustomed to hexing people for revenge, personal gain, or her own amusement, and she had often cast spells on behalf of clients over the years, but it was rare to have to cast something whose sole purpose was to brighten someone's day. If Laura had just been a couple of years older, she'd be interested in boys, or, with a supreme amount of luck, in girls. And that would make knowing what to cast easy. But alas, she hadn't quite reached that point yet. Lara, meanwhile, needed to try her spell first, just to see if she'd gotten everything right. With the witch's help, she'd gotten her ingredients— and had broken off a branch from the tree that grew next to the bus stop she took to school in the mornings, to use as her safeguard. Holcomb used the word circuit-breaker when describing the flower or stick that one snapped to break the spell. That seemed like a cool, modern-sounding word for a magical failsafe. but the old woman claimed there had been devices called circuit-breakers way back when she was a little girl. At her last school, Laura had made the mistake of casting three or four spells on her classmates, and she didn't want to start that again at her new school. Holcomb had wanted her to be careful not to draw attention to herself, and had even pressured her to change her name, go by Hazel or Gretchen or Luella or something, which the girl refused to do. Her dead mother had named her Laura, after all. So she decided to try the casting on a stranger in a public place where she could observe the results unnoticed. It was the last Saturday before Christmas. The Praisden Pool had been recently expanded, and though it closed in the winter, they had converted the space to an outdoor skating rink, where people in town could pay to skate on it, or just stand around for free and watch. It was like that place by the tree and statue in New York City, or at least that was the idea, and since it was on the same street as the park, the junior high, and the fruish movie theater, Laura often enjoyed going there and watching people having a good time. She mixed her ingredients, slathered them liberally onto the tree branch, and wrapped them in newspaper. Then she bundled up, including an extra pair of socks, and walked halfway to Chanugana Hill and onto Main Street, the sun shining but an icy wind making her nose and ears turn pink. There was a big turnout at the ice skating rink that day, due to a Christmas week promotion, where skating was free, minus the skate rental fee if you didn't have your own, and a big group of mostly families were going around the rink while holiday music played from the speakers. Lara had never learned to ice skate herself, but promised to learn in the new year. Old Widow Holcomb, however, considered skating a fool's pastime, since she had been able to levitate in the air for fun since the time she was three or four years old. The show-off. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time, by some one-hit wonder Lara had forgotten the name of, began to play. She watched the skaters slowly going round and round, and picked one, a Hispanic teen girl, to be the target of her spell. The girl was heavy-set and probably the worst skater in her group, but laughed every time she fell, and seemed to be truly enjoying herself with her giggling friends. So Laura unwrapped the branch, chanted a few words of Latin she had written on a notebook page, and pointed the stick through the fence that surrounded the Praisden pool area, like it was a pistol, or more accurately, a magic wand. When the girl who it sounded was named Hannah or Anna or something, shakily went past. Laura muttered, "Libit Vobiscum, and felt a jolt in her hand from the stick. It didn't shoot out a beam or make any Harry Potter-type blast, but she knew it had done something. Hannah, Anna, kept skating, still not quite able to go where she wanted the skates to take her, and almost going down on all fours before catching herself, Maybe Lara shouldn't try ice skating in the new year, after all. Two people saw her do this, and one of them applauded, while the other called out, Good save! The skater tried again, moving less gracefully than even the little kids that were out on the ice. But as she went around the track this time, people seemed to notice her efforts. Keep going, Lara heard a woman shout. "Look what is puedes there, one of her friends said which Lara didn't get at all, and patted her on the back. Hannah, Anna, laughed, and got three or four good strokes or pushes or whatever in a row. A family, all holding hands, greeted her as she went past. You're doing great! The dad, who looked funny trying to skate with jeans and a cowboy hat on, called to her. Lara saw Hannah, Anna, squint at this, perhaps wondering if people were making fun of her, but went back to laughing when she almost hit into one of her friends, who pinwheeled her arms melodramatically as the girl swept past her. Better, better, her friend told her, and the especially poor skater took inspiration from this and went around the track with more confidence than before. A teen boy with more acne than five average high schoolers waved at her as she went past and said, I've always loved you, Anna. The girl did a double take at this, trying to see who had said that. And the motion of her upper body caused her to lose her balance, her feet going up as she landed hard on her back, the momentum still moving her along a few feet. There was a collective gasp from the skaters as it happened, as though Anna had landed on her face, maybe getting an ice skate in her eye in the process. People ran over to help her, even children, at least a dozen of them, to the point where Lara couldn't see the fallen girl at all anymore. And then, She was up again, having been bodily lifted by twenty or more hands, almost like people did at concerts where they'd ride on top of audience members in YouTube videos. The fact that everyone was paying attention to her was not lost on Anna. She nodded and skated on, showing everybody she was all right. Is that girl okay, Mommy? A little girl dressed from head to toe in pink asked right beside the fence. I think so, Avery, her mother said, and added, Thank God, for good measure. Laura watched Anna skating for a couple more minutes, her and her friends the focus of affection and encouragement from everyone they saw. Laura saw her skate up to the pimply teen boy who had distracted her before, say something, and give him a high five. He watched her, red-faced, and then skated after her, easily catching up with Anna. One of her friends did a figure-eight around him, accidentally slapping his butt as she did it. But he only had eyes for Anna. All right. Pretty good, Lara said to herself. She still held the stick in her fingers, and, though tempted to just let the casting continue, snapped the branch with her hands, terminating the spell. As soon as she did it, people went back to what they were doing, focusing on their own groups and families, and letting Anna and her friends go on with their business. Only the boy with the bad skin continued to shower her with attention. And that seemed fine with Lara. She walked back home, listening to music on her phone, not even feeling the cold December wind as it blew on her back. Happy Christmas tide, Lara. Holcomb said when the girl came out of her room on that morning. Yeah, thanks. You too. The girl was sleepy and trudged toward the bathroom, still half unconscious. No wonder. It was 10.45 a.m. after all. But as she got to the door, she paused. Right. Christmas Eve. You had said we were to go out today, Holcomb reminded her. Uh Uh-huh. Let me get a shower and brush my teeth. Then we'll talk. Good idea. I can smell you from here, the witch said, which was not true, and Laura didn't believe that it was. When the girl came out, freshly washed but still not dressed, Holcomb presented her with a festive green sweater she'd picked out. What's that? Laura asked. That's not mine. It is now, for the holiday. Wow. Thanks, Laura said, noticing little snowmen stitched into it in even rows. It seemed awfully cutesy for Victoria Holcomb to buy her. But when she looked closer, she saw that the snowmen alternated between having pumpkins for heads and skulls. Cute, she said. She started for her room, her hair still dripping on the floor. Before she got to her door, she asked, Did you get a matching one for you? Don't be ridiculous, Holcomb said. I would look obscene in that. Laura scowled at her. Right. Not enough boob showing. The witch smirked. May you one day be equally burdened, child. Laura started moving again. Where is it we're going today? Holcomb asked before Laura could get to her room and close the door. University Mall. The Mall? But it's the day before Christmas. Uh Uh-huh. Have you any idea how crowded it's going to be? Sure. Before the girl could get away, Holcomb asked, Should I have gotten a matching sweater? I tend to only wear black and white, you know. Oh, yeah. Sometimes red, though. Well, I look very fine in red, Holcomb bragged. You look very fine in everything, Laura muttered, and went into her room. After lunch, a mostly vegetable gumbo Holcomb had prepared without Laura seeing her open a can or turn on the stove. They got in the old woman's Mercedes and drove out of town toward the mall. Are you sure about this? Holcomb asked as they got on the freeway. We can go anywhere you like, you know. How about Paris Disneyland? Laura asked. "'Well, I, I I suppose, if that's where you really wanted to—' "'I was kidding,' Laura said, but gawked at the old woman. "'Could we really go to Paris?' "'If you like. It's a crowded place, with a population ruder even than New York. "'I speak quite excellent French, but they reacted with such disdain that I never went back.' "'Maybe you don't speak so excellent French after all—' "'Laura began.' but cut herself off. Chances were that Holcomb spoke it like a native. "'When was this that you went?' she asked instead. "'The last time was 1981.' "'Whoa,' Lara said. In her mind, the 80s might as well have been the Old West. "'Had they even built the Eiffel Tower by then?' Holcomb scowled. But it was half-hearted. "'Yes.' But it was only the Eiffel Ladder at that point. Laura laughed. (gasps) Last time, you said. How many times have you been there? Half a dozen, over the years. But you'd never go back? Doubtful. Eighty-one was the last time. Holcomb ignored a car that was trying to get her to move out of the fast lane, despite only going sixty in a seventy-five. About the third person to make light of my accent was too many. We left for Germany the next morning, about the time the papers were reporting an epidemic of Parisians biting off their own tongues. Laura's expression changed as she contemplated this rather dark turn, and asked if she could turn on the heater. She turned it on, turned it up, and the old woman turned it down again. What's your favorite country to go to? Laura asked after a moment. I'm fond of Spain, Belarus, what used to be Czechoslovakia, El Salvador, Greece, Sicily, Cuba, Tobago, and Saint-Tropez, among others. Lara wasn't sure if she'd made any of those up, but asked, How about Canada? Oh, gods, no. Never Canada, Holcomb said sourly. Promise me you'll never go there. "'But Niagara Falls is in Canada.' "'Promise?' Holcomb growled. Uh, "'I don't know that I can do that. "'But I'll try.' "'Sometimes that's all we can do, child. "'Even I have managed to let myself down, "'despite having the noblest intentions.' "'She gave Laura a sidelong glance. "'Are you sure you'd like to go to the mall?' "'There are malls in Canada.' Laura told her, for no reason she could think of. Do not mention Canada again, Laura. It's a cold, lifeless place with stout, cheerful people whom I despise. What does stout mean? Fat. I meant it as tough or strong. But yes, it can mean fat. Well done. Laura smiled at that. They drove on. They got off the University Parkway exit, Laura having made the mistake of turning on the radio to listen to Christmas carols. Mariah Carey was confessing that all she wanted for Christmas was you, and Michael Buble was belting out Silent Night before Holcomb told her to change the station. Nearly every one of them was playing holiday tunes, from Eurythmics' Winter Wonderland to Nat King Cole's Christmas Song, from Flo Rida's What Child Is This to Justin Bieber doing Santa Claus is Coming to Town. That girl's singing is awful, Holcomb grumbled. It's Justin Bieber, Lara corrected her. Guess where he's from? Is it hell? No, he's Canadian. Holcomb shuddered theatrically, as if I didn't have enough reason to despise him. Do you even know who Justin Bieber is? I've heard the name. Sometimes I have a spell that requires virginal discharge, and... She, too, changed her mind and stopped talking. Change the station. The next one was doing Carol of the Bells, and to both of their surprise, Holcomb told her to leave it there. I kind of like that one. They got to the mall, and, big surprise, nearly every single parking spot was taken. They had to circle the aisles, And finally, when they saw a car backing out the next row over, a big white SUV started signaling that it was theirs. Holcomb muttered something that might have been a profanity, but more likely was a spell, because the SUV took off their blinker and kept driving, letting them take the space. But maybe it was just the Christmas spirit. They got out of the car, tiny snowflakes starting to come down all around them. ''This place is going to be a madhouse, Lara,'' Holcomb bitched. ''Maybe they're all here to see Santa,'' said the girl. She had her school backpack with her and was fishing around for something inside it. A few rows over, there was a loud crashing sound as the white SUV tried to park in a spot where a police car was sitting. Holcomb blinked in mock surprise and exclaimed, ''What on earth could that have been?'' While she looked around, pretending not to know what had happened, Lara pointed her new stick, this one looking almost exactly like a Harry Potter wand, at her, and said, "Libit, Vobiscum, to her. Then she put the stick back in the car on the seat before it could be seen. "'The devil was that?' Holcomb asked the girl. "'What do you mean? That sound? I think somebody just had a bend-your-fender.' "'I don't care for the big sports vehicles. What can I say?' Laura handed the old woman, who looked like a youngish grandma today, her scarf and said, "'Shall we go?' She put out her elbow, like a fancy gentleman in a Jane Austen movie. "'Shall we?' repeated Holcomb, taking her arm like a good sport. "'Where are we going, exactly?' If it's the Disney store, I will summon wasps on you, girl. Really? In December? Laura asked. You'd prefer boll weevils? Laura didn't know what those were, but could imagine the worst. We'll just walk around. Watch people. Tell me what boys you think are cute. Holcomb pulled away from her. Are you out of your godda- Or we could go to the Disney store. I like their Olaf plushies. No. Fine. Boy-watching is acceptable. She took Laura's arm again, and they went toward the mall. An older man with bags from Hallmark, Mr. Mac, H&M, and Thai Pan Trading Stores in both arms saw them coming and shifted everything awkwardly to one arm so he could pull open the University Mall doors for them. Laura and the witch went through the doors past him. Happy holidays, he said while visibly straining. Thank you, young man, Holcomb said, which might have been intended as a joke, but was actually the truth of it, compared to her, anyway. He beamed at her, and Lara briefly considered helping him with his many bags, but he reshuffled and went out into the cold with little difficulty. This was the entrance to the section of the mall that housed Santa's Pavilion, and a line of families, mostly moms and grandmothers, were lined up to give their children a last-minute interaction with Santa Claus and blow fifteen dollars a pop on a photograph as Laura and Holcomb walked past several of the people in line looked over and smiled, waved, and one little girl, maybe four years old, said, "Thank you, lady Holcomb side-eyed the child, ignoring her as best she could, but Laura could see her body language change slightly. A heavy-set lady holding a toddler in her arms, pointed to the witch and said, in a language sort of like Spanish, something to the child. A moment later, the toddler said, Buon Natale! and beamed proudly. Lara grinned at them and waved. Holcomb kept walking, muttering to Lara, Which store did you need to go to? I'll know it when I see it, Lara said, who had no plans to go to any store today. A couple of teenaged boys, a grade or two older than Lara, were taking turns hitting each other on the arm and saying words like pussy quite a bit too loudly, right until they saw Holcomb approach. Then, as though zapped by invisible cattle prods, they comported themselves and said, "'Merry Merry Christmas!' in unison at Holcomb and Lara. One of them, the less cute one, unfortunately, eyed Lara and said, "'Hey!' as they walked by, causing only the tiniest bit of red to grow in the girl's cheeks. Lara, old widow Holcomb asked under her breath. Why are all these people looking at us? Looking, Lara repeated, as innocently as can be. She glanced behind them. The two teenaged boys were following them, dazed, almost dreamlike expressions on their faces. Maybe it's that scarf you're wearing. You're right. It is a pretty color. A mall security guard gave Holcomb a thumbs up, and the two teen boys watched her walk away with a combination of awe and horniness. Man, I wish my mom looked like that, one of them stage whispered to the other. I wish she did too, his friend said. I'd spend the night every Friday. Lara snickered at that, and wondered if the old woman's hearing was good enough to have appreciated it. Since she made no comment, Lara figured it wasn't. In the center of the mall, they walked past the big North Pole set-up with Santa on it, and turned right. Why, hello there, called a male voice behind them. They whipped back around to see the department store Santa on his platform, standing up and gesturing with his hands. Everybody, look at that nice lady there. Thank her for all she does, will you? And at least a hundred people did so. Holcomb was visibly alarmed as the two of them kept walking past boxed lunch, the Jesus-painting alcove, and toward the dreaded Disney store. Lara, she hissed at her, as quietly as she could manage. What the hellfire are they on about? I don't know, Lara lied, trying not to grin, but failing. I think they just appreciate you, maybe even love you. Holcomb stopped in her tracks, and the people walking behind her moved quickly out of the way, some of them even apologizing. She gave them a nod, then looked back down at Lara. You did this, didn't you? Cast something on all of these people. When? How did you get here? I didn't. You can't know how to self conduct. Did you astral project? How did you manage that? Beside them, A little boy, this one approximately six years old, ran out of the Build-A-Bear workshop and handed Holcomb a teddy bear fresh from the machine. For you, he proclaimed. Holcomb clutched the bear for just a moment before the boy's mother came running out. Thad, we haven't finished with that yet. The woman saw the bear in Holcomb's hand and froze where she stood. I, uh, suppose he can give it to who he wants, the mother said. "'Sorry if he bothered you.' "'No bother,' Holcomb said, and handed the bear, which had a little vest and a single elf ear attached to it, back to the little boy. "'Thaddeus O'Connell, you deserve this doll so much more than I do. Would you hold on to it for me?' Uh "'Uh-huh,' the boy said, his eyes getting big, and he held it close to his little jacket. "'Thank the nice lady,' the boy's mother said. Then, after he had done so, she ushered him back into the store, where Laura heard her say, You take good care of that, Thad. It's extra special now. Laura had to force her grin from her face. Again. So, this is all your handiwork? Holcomb asked Laura, Not sure. It's hard to say. Maybe these people just love you. And Holcomb blinked at that. The spell hadn't been placed on all these strangers, but on her, and it was, it seemed to have worked wonders. A tall man in a nice suit was walking in their direction. He did a double-take when he saw Holcomb, and made a beeline for the woman, bumping unknowingly into a gorgeous twenty-something on a cell phone. He was completely oblivious to her, hot as she was. A. "'Maybe we should go,' Laura said. She reached into her jacket for her circuit-breaking stick, loath to fracture it now, but did not want a -a six-and-a-half-foot stranger to start kissing her legal guardian, even if she'd normally find it hilarious. But the tall man merely raised his hat at them, like he'd come all the way from the 1940s. "'Merry Christmas, ladies,' the tall man said, and kept on walking. No, no, Holcomb said. Let's at least walk to the other side of this row. Uh, for exercise, I mean. Okay, Laura said. And they did. They emerged from the southwest doors a half an hour later, the cold of the day hitting them like a chilled caress. So how was that? Laura couldn't help but ask. "'Rather wonderful, I have to admit. "'Of course, I might have gotten that same reaction "'had I worn my black silk Mansfield dress.' "'You ought to retire that dress, Auntie,' Laura said. "'You shouldn't show that much boob unless you're breastfeeding.' "'The witch laughed, and it seemed genuine. "'They neared their car, and an ugly, scary-looking dude "'got out of his tricked-out Mazda 3 "'and took a step toward them so sudden that they both flinched away from him. You want me to scrape your windshield? He volunteered, showing a mouth of mostly silver teeth. No, thank you, Holcomb said, sounding positively gracious. But you have a good holiday, won't you? Shit, I will now, he said, and marched toward the mall like a proud ten-year-old. Before they got in the car, Holcomb asked, So what was it, exactly? That the people would greet me festively? The spell? Lara asked. Or that they feel compelled to show me respect? Sort of. They were supposed to recognize you as someone they loved. Not sure it worked 100%. Well. Seemed mighty close. Holcomb said. And unlocked the doors. Lara opened the passenger door. Took out the stick and instead of snapping it, just kept it with her for the drive. Holcomb got in beside her and started the engine. And how did the spell affect you, child? Laura hadn't considered that. Oh, I don't know. I don't think it affected me at all, she admitted, which was pretty lucky. Holcomb just looked at her. It was a long enough look that Laura Deming started to feel uncomfortable. Then Holcomb put on her seatbelt and said, Not bad, girlie. Not bad. The next day, on Christmas morning, Holcomb said, Are you ready for your gift, Lara? Sure. I'm afraid it won't compare to the one you gave me, I must admit. That made Lara feel pretty accomplished. Of course, I would never be that sentimental, so it's a moot point. Holcomb said, ruining the moment. They went into the living room, where there was no tree, but there was an antique snowman display sitting on the coffee table. It had creepy, shark-like eyes and a top hat, and reminded Lara of one of those jump-scare horror movies where the single mother has a socially backward child with a mop of unruly hair and an imaginary friend. Holcomb had boasted that the snowman was made of asbestos, some material they didn't make anymore. Laura suspected they didn't make it any more due to sheer ugliness. Holcomb had laid out various candies and cookies around the snowman's base and put several chocolate-covered raisins in a pile at the snowman's rear. Pretty funny. Sleep all right, Holcomb asked, and before she could answer, added, You did break the spell you put over me, didn't you? I told you I would, Laura said though she had waited until after midnight before snapping the twig in two. It would have been hilarious to see the witch discover people still loved her wherever she went, in spite of her personality. That's good. If you hadn't, I'm afraid you'd have been eaten by rats during the night. Laura called her bluff. Do they even have rats here? These would have been rats from hell, child, much nastier. "'Ah, like you,' Laura couldn't help but reply. But the sides of her mouth were rising as she did it. "'Exactly like me,' Holcomb said, and handed Laura a brown paper sack sealed with a single staple. Laura thanked her and opened it, removing a cozy-looking salmon-colored sweater in it. "'Hey, it's pink, my favorite.' "'Well, no, I'd say this was champagne.' "'Pale dogwood, we used to call it, with a bit of amaranth, perhaps.' Laura studied the sweater. "'Not pink. Maybe you're seeing something different than—' "'There are different shades,' Holcomb grumbled. "'Anyway, it's charmed to grow as you grow. "'Should last five or so years.' "'Yeah?' Laura asked, dubiously. "'She liked the sweater, sure.' but she wasn't sure she wanted to still be wearing it at eighteen. It will clear your skin each time you wear it, added the witch. Should prevent acne, most of it, anyway. Maybe Laura would be wearing it for the next five years at that. It was a pretty thoughtful gift, if less flashy than she'd been expecting. Laura appreciated it and thanked her. Holcomb reached behind her comfy chair and produced a mason jar with what looked like a fire or a lit candle in it. And here's something I thought you'd enjoy, a little pet of sorts. She handed it to Laura, who was careful with the glass, afraid it would be hot to the touch. It wasn't. What do I do? Open it? Of course you open it. Laura did so, hesitant. She let out an involuntary yelp as something round and flaming leapt up out of the bottle and passed her face. It was a ball of fire, approximately the size of an apple or baseball, and instead of burning her, it floated in front of her at eye level, like a drone. She could hear a light crackling coming from it, like a campfire that's burned down to cinders. What is... she began, but closed her mouth as she sensed the fireball looking at her as it floated there. It had a presence, like a living thing, and it moved closer and farther away from her face, as though it were an animal. There is a card, Holcomb said from her chair. Laura didn't want to look away from the flame creature, but made herself do so long enough to pick up the tiny envelope, tied to the bottle's lid, and struggle to open it. Inside was indeed a very small note, written in Holcomb's impossibly precise hand. She read it over. Lara, this is our first Christmas living together, and I thought you might enjoy a pet. You found it hilariously ironic that I have a cat allergy, and dogs tend to see me as their enemies, so I made something for you. It will follow you, keep you warm, and try to entertain you. If you wish it to return to its bottle, simply say, "'Ello If you wish for it to be visible only to you, say Cudbantia. If you tire of its presence and wish for it to cease to exist, die. Tell it "Silg from near." That last bit is permanent. I hope you find joy and brightness in the holiday season, as you seem to have brought these things to my life, Toria Holcomb. Laura looked up from the note, wondering if she might need glasses, and saw the ball of fire still floating there, still waiting for her. She raised her hand to it, and it flitted around, not unlike a puppy. A flying puppy, that was. On fire. But can it start fires? Like, on the curtains? No, the flames are not technically here with us, in our dimension, so they won't burn anything, it can grow brighter or dimmer, depending on your needs. Like a flashlight, you mean? Exactly. Would you like me to find you the words for brighter and dimmer? You mean you don't know? Nobody speaks Relukian more, Lara. You'd be hard-pressed to find a single grimoire in any collection, even among occultists. Lara couldn't make heads or tails of that explanation, but just nodded. These three words are fine, she said. She spent a few minutes playing with the fireball, having it chase her around the living room, up and down the basement stairs, and for five minutes in the backyard until her feet got too cold and she came back in. Then they had soup together in the kitchen, something delicious and spicy with either turkey or chicken in it, though Holcomb jokingly claimed it was fruit bat. Laura let the ball out of the bottle again, and it zoomed up to her, practically hitting her in the face as though it wanted to play. It made the girl laugh, and that was pleasant to watch. Perhaps you could give it a name, the witch said, if you like. That would be fun, Laura said, and played fetch several more times with it, only using the creature as the ball. When it came back to her the next time, she held it in her hands, looking it over. There were no eyes, no mouth, no limbs or head, but she felt it looking at her just the same. Aunt Toria, the girl asked. Is it alive? Not like you and I are, Holcomb said, carrying their soup bowls back to the kitchen where, as though she had not placed them in the sink or turned on the water, they were clean a moment later. Lara grabbed the ball in the air with her hands, felt it gyrating there, then threw it across the room like a basketball. It hit the wall, spun in the air, and came back to her, like a magical round boomerang. What do you mean by that? Is it alive or not? Holcomb stifled a yawn. Are dandelions alive? Are earthworms alive? Are career politicians alive? Lara had to keep from rolling her eyes. Yes, they are. Well, then it is, too. "'More so than a flower, less so than a dog or bird or the bat we had for lunch.' "'And a politician?' Laura asked, amused. "'Oh, much more alive than that. "'But don't you worry, this little orb will never try to curtail your reproductive rights "'while inserting a tax break for itself.' "'That's a relief,' Laura said, and played with it for a minute or two more.' Well, I think I'll go in my workshop for a while, Holcomb said, waiting to see what the girl's reaction was before she left the room. Wait, don't go, Laura said. Holcomb cleared her throat and stayed where she was, afraid this would happen. The girl didn't want to be alone on this wretched day, and the attention of a flame soul was apparently not enough of a distraction. Laura ran in her bedroom and grabbed her backpack, fishing something out as she came back into the room, the ball of fire hot on her heels. She handed a small present to the old woman. Got you something else. You did? It's not much, said the girl. Well, I... I Go ahead. Open it. Holcomb did. It was a snow globe, only not a Christmas one. It had been a Halloween snow globe, with a witch on a broomstick inside it. Instead of white snowflakes, when you shook it up, tiny black spiders moved through the water, like a swarm of gnats. On the front of it, it proclaimed happy holidays, though it was obvious that the girl had whited out Halloween and written the substitute word in its place. Holcomb shook it again, watching the mass of black specks and the witch. "'Well, that's very nice, Laura. She sounded completely sincere. It was on clearance at the drugstore, Laura admitted, though she didn't know why. Only fifty cents. Quite a bargain, said the witch. She shook up the globe again. The fire soul watched it intently, hovering in the air between them. Best fifty cents you've ever spent. Merry Christmas, Auntie Toria, Laura said. Happy solstice, child, Holcomb said back, and they shared a smile. The end.
1: All right, there is Made Just For You, and uh, I used a fun slightly ominous, mysterious, dark version of Adestus Fidelis that uh, Kevin MacLeod did. I do try to mention him in every episode, but it's usually just in the creative... I guess Fake Sean mentions him in every episode that his work is used. He really is a good friend to the podcaster, and I hear his music on YouTube all the time. It almost seems like I hear it on commercials every once in a while, but, um, this is a light story. There's not a lot going on, but that's what holiday stories are supposed to be. I was watching Jimmy Kimmel yesterday and he, he read the descriptions of, I want to say five lifetime Christmas movies that were on, I guess the on demand, Right on Lifetime, and they were almost word-for-word, it was cookie-cutter how formulaic they were, and the description was definitely cookie-cutter. Like, there was an extremely lazy person writing the copy that used the same wording, just the locations were different, and the, the descriptions of the characters were different. I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, people don't want to be challenged for a Christmas story, and uh, I try to write one every year. This year, I am I was going very well on it. I, I, I should be done with it. Then I got this gig on a TV show, and it took up just the whole day. Each day. I didn't see the sun. There's no time to go to the library. Yesterday would have been the one time I had, and I was stuck with my sister's kids. And so there was the day. But, Next week should be much more back to normal, and I will try to get over there, and I will try to finish that story. But you want, on a Christmas story, for there to be some kind of theme of hope and togetherness and warmth. And it's hard to do on something like this because, as I've mentioned before, I wanted Old Widow Holcomb to be a a rough, vulgar evil person, and for Lara to be bright-eyed and optimistic and sweet. But as the years go on and bad things pile on to Lara, it's going to be a challenge to see if she can maintain her decency. With Holcomb, it's not so difficult because uh, in caring for this girl and spending time with her and looking out for her, she does grow to care for Lara and see Lara as maybe a second chance to be a mother. And um, I have the story that I wrote after this one started when Lara was 15 or 16, and then it jumps ahead to her senior year. And those two are, are essentially mother and daughter by that point. And then I've jumped back multiple times. I, I think that in 2021... I wrote a story where she was 13, a story where she was 15, a story where she was 16, and one right before her 18th birthday. And so I did make a list, or is it a list? What would you call it? I don't know. A timeline where all the stories take place. But since I've not put any of them out except for this one, it only helps me. There's no point in putting that out. Again, I... I I was going to talk about the challenge of writing these stories. I'm not a foster parent. Obviously, I'm not a girl. I've never been a teenage girl. Sometimes I worry about writing youths, writing teenagers. Children, I don't have that hard a time writing children because... They they don't seem to have changed all that much since I was one. But teenagers are different now than they were then. Or or it may be that I was different. Uh, You know, I was hopelessly naive and backwards. And a lot of my characters are one or two of those things. I do really, really enjoy my teenage characters not having all the answers not knowing what something is, getting a reference wrong. Uh, I put a wrong reference. It has to be in every single one of these Lara and the Witch stories. Uh, I think the one that jumped out in, at me on this one was the one-hit wonder who had written Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time. That's a lot of wonders, on. Huh? Sorry about the quality of this recording. I I had my little bag ready to go. And I forgot it, and as I was pulling away from the house, I remembered that I'd forgotten it, and thought, oh, well, I should go back and get it. It'll only take me a minute. And then I thought, well, really, what do I have in there? And I'm worried that the paperback book that I had been reading on set is in there, and I know that my recorder was in there. And so, unfortunately, I have to do this episode on the phone, and the sound is it's not great sorry. But um, as far as like, slang goes and the way that teenagers talk today, you can tie yourself in knots trying to find out how young people actually talk, what references young people would use, and all you end up doing is dating the story that you're writing. You know, every single teenager watched Euphoria the year that I wrote this, but putting references to them watching Euphoria just makes it of that time. I put a couple of references in a lovely singing voice to the technology at the time that was, you know, whatever iPhone it was, it was iPhone 10 and an Xbox one and the games they were playing. And when I wrote that, wow. Okay. This is top of the line. This is brand new stuff. But now, if you read that story or listen to that story, it's dated. Uh, You know, that reminds me, I'm 100% sure I never ran that on the show. Maybe I ought to. That is in that next collection, which is all but done. The only thing I need to do is have Big do the intro for it and do a word count on it so I'm, I'm sure that it's no shorter than the other four collections. I think I can have that out early 2023. I could have it out 2022 if I twisted Big's arm and said here, but he might want to read those stories so that he has something to reference. I tried to put only stories he was familiar with, whether they had been on my show or whether they had been on our show or they were stories that had something to do with him that I had shared with him before. But even so, there there are going to be a couple of things that he's not familiar with. I've never been asked to write the introduction to something. And so I'm not sure how much work that will be. But yeah, I I think I'll run that in 2023. The trailer for the new Miles Morales Spider-Verse movie just came out and the character's mother says something at the very beginning some kind of teenage slang to him, and he's like, Mom, no kid has ever used those words in that order. Hope I didn't ice your game, man. No
0: one my age says those words in that order.
1: You know, it's just a, a generation gap kind of thing that they're showing. I'm I sometimes afraid of that, of somebody saying, this is an old guy trying to write how teenagers talk. I could write a story about teenagers in the 80s and 90s, and people could still say that. Because everybody's youth is different. Everybody's experiences are different. They had friends. They had private jokes between their friends and words that only they and their friends used. That sort of stuff is universal. But at the same time, if you could go back in time and listen... To you, a conversation between you and your friends from when you were that age, you would win because it's not Dawson's Creek, it's not Euphoria. Teenagers are not smart in the way that they talk. I, I I'll just, I'll let that go. I had an idea for another Christmas story just this week, another Lara and the Witch Christmas story. Uh, although it could easily be a Valentine's Day story. That's only two months away. We'll see. Uh, I could present the Valentine's Day Lauren the Witch story for that day, but I, I wouldn't want to reward that day. We'll, we'll, like I said, we, we will see. I scrambled to put this out because I wanted there to be a Christmas episode on the Doonstief big big reminded me just the other day of how we would scramble to put out a Christmas episode. And probably the maddest I ever was at Big, ever, was the day that I gave up my Christmas Eve to edit an episode and have it all done. Uh, I was at my parents' house and my mom was like, hey, hey, come on, when are you coming out? And I said, oh, I'm almost done with this. I'm almost done, you know, and finally I got it. Sent to him, woo! And now I could enjoy Christmas, and he didn't post it. He said he was too busy with his family to put it up, and I was upset about that. But he reminded me that uh, things get really, really hectic around the holidays, and it was always a struggle to get something out before Christmas. So if you're listening to this on the 27th, he's totally right. But uh, I hope that your Christmas is a good one, and I hope that my show has done something for you this year, hopefully made you laugh or entertain you. There are podcasts out there that are meant to enlighten or educate. There are podcasts out there that are meant to disturb, to stir people up, to do something about the injustices of life. There are podcasts out there about inclusion so people can listen and say, Hey, I'm not alone. Those are all great things. This podcast of mine is never going to be any of those things, but it is meant to entertain. I do my best to be interesting or amusing or thoughtful or genuine, and I may not always succeed, but I hope that (laughs) it's more hit than it is miss.
0: Hello, this is Rish Outfield. I need to take a moment to make a personal request. And that request is, please, this holiday season, do not play Linus and Lucy from the Peanuts specials by Vince Caraldi. I, hey. hey. I said, I said, don't play it, please. And there's a a reason for this. It's not just that I hate it. And boy, boy, do I hate it. It's a a public safety issue. I am afraid that if I ever hear Linus and Lucy again in a public place, that I will kill someone. So please, for the love of God, Can we retire that song? Just do me that favor. When I am dead, you guys can start playing it again. And boy, it will make your celebrations all the more festive by playing that song. But won't someone please think of the children? Hey, that's not funny.
1: You have a great new year, I've got these Eurotrip episodes I need to finish putting out and then we can go back to the way it was. I did record another episode for a podcast that dares not speak its name and I can run that either in between Eurotrip episodes or after and then in the new year, who knows? what will happen and what we will talk about. Send me suggestions if you want. Send me questions to do Q and A's. Send me your baby teeth. Happy holidays, pleasant new year to you. I have been Rich Outfield. Have yourself, simply have yourself a wonderful Christmas time. Good night.
0: This is fake Sean Connery. Whether you liked it or hated it, The podcast was produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution No Derivatives License, which allows free distribution of the show, but does not allow it to be claimed, edited, or sold, or for it to be bisected by a laser beam. The music therein, provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, was also under a Creative Commons License. Special thanks to Gino the Divino Moretto for the logo he designed for this podcast. Please she it in your heart to forgive him. So should I do my Christmas episode or should I talk briefly about High School Musical? But... This is not a story about the tree, per se. Neither is it the story of... I'm going to say neither. Neither is it the story of the witch who dwells in a cottage between its twisting roots. No, I can't sell that. Neither is it the story of the witch who dwells in a cottage between its twisted roots. Who dwells in a cottage between its twisting roots. Conan noted the un... Conan noted the evident uneasiness among the uneasiness among the black giants who guarded him and as he swung back the ponderous portal conan conan noted the evident uneasiness among the soft white hands that had caressed him red lips that had been pressed
1: to his dainty white bosoms that had quivered to his hot fierce kisses